Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. On a daily basis is called resveratrol. R-E-S-V-E-R-A-T-R-O-L. Now why? Because it boosts bone health by stimulating mineralization and bone formation. And that's what it found. And this was a gold standard, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled research conducted at the hospital, and it gave men with an average age of 49 and body mass index of 33, which means they're obese, either 1,000 milligrams or 150 grams or placebo daily via supplement. And the primary endpoint was change in bone alkaline phosphatase, and this measure improved significantly over a 16-week study compared to placebo, meaning they're having stronger bones. And boy, do we need that since we have so much osteoporosis. So make sure that you're getting your resveratrol each day. It does a lot of other good things too, including for your brain and your heart and your lungs. From Thomas Jefferson University, a study suggests that extra L-tryptophan could reduce the risk of future colitis flares. So, A lot of people in the holiday season are going to be eating a lot of pro-inflammatory foods, eating too much, and that can trigger ulcerative colitis. So, in fact, these are very painful symptoms, but new research shows that certain foods, especially those high in tryptophan and nuts and seeds, could reduce the risk of colitis flare. Findings point to a non-invasive method of improving long-term colitis management. So that's important. That was a laboratory study. But those of us in the health field have known that for a long time. And the reason is simple. Since ulcerative colitis is caused by inflammation of the inner lining of the colon and rectum, then anything that can tamp down that inflammation in the tissue And therefore, there's a group of immune cells called T-regulatory cells, which can help break the cycle of inflammation. And they found that the inflammation-suppressing T-regulatory cells in the colon uh, were benefited when they had extra tryptophan. So, extra tryptophan foods in your diet. And from Washington University School of Medicine, Uh, This was presented at the Radiological Society of North America annual meeting. They found that that kind of hidden body fat in midlife is linked to Alzheimer's disease. That's serious. So higher amounts of visceral, what you can see, abdominal fat, in let's say from 35 to 50, are linked to the development of Alzheimer's disease. And the visceral fat is fat surrounding the internal organs deep in the belly. And researchers found that this hidden abdominal fat is related to changes in the brain up to 15 years before the earliest onset of memory loss, symptoms of Alzheimer's. Now, mind you, you your body's fat is, is very easy to understand. When there's no longer any more room in the cell for fat, it spills out into the surrounding area, and that's your visceral fat. But if it continues, then you start to see your BMI, your body mass index, it starts to expand. 
grows higher. Ideally, men should be oh, around anywhere from 11 to 14, women from 15 to 20. You start getting into the high 20s and 30s and 40s, then you're obese and you risk earlier death and all kinds of conditions. So exercising, eating healthy foods, that reduces that chance. So when you look down, you see your belly. Okay, it's bulging. And then your hips and your thighs. Just be conscious that later on that could lead to Alzheimer's disease. And finally, from the American Pulses Association, an article published in Nutrients. And by the way, your pulses are legumes, um, let's say split peas, lentils, things like that. A recent study showed that when you exchange pulses or legumes uh, for small amounts of typical protein sources and get rid of refined grains like white rice, significantly improves the nutritional profile in your diet. So that's important. But Americans don't eat pulses. Very rare. Because we want large, something that looks large on a plate. And uh, like big, a big bunch of french fries, or a steak, or a meatloaf. A big bun sandwich. You know, we, we keep getting bigger and bigger. And of course we should get smaller and smaller in the amounts of foods that we eat. So get rid of all the refined grains, refined carbohydrates, and instead replace them with split peas, lentils, chickpeas, and beans. And that will keep your calories down, the amount of protein you require higher, which is good, and that can also lower your cholesterol, increases fiber, and has you become more regular, and all that's to your betterment. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who have anxiety, stress, and mood problems, brand new study on Rhodiola rosea, R-H-O-D-I-O-L-A, R-O-S-E-A, Rhodiola rosea extract can improve anxiety, stress, and mood. And that was in this study. And uh, so they, they looked at mildly anxious students in over 14 days, those who took the Rhodiola rosea extract significantly reduced self-reported anxiety and stress. All right. Also, they reported less anger, confusion, and depression. So something good for something that simple. And by the way, almost half, well, not quite, but 43% of Americans are frequently constipated. Two in three Americans are dreading being overweight or overeating because they're going to be constipated. They're eating the wrong foods. I'm going to do a whole classroom on the air on that on tomorrow's program on constipation. That's it for health and nutrition. We're going to take a break and come right back. I have a lot of good stuff today on today's program. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Yesterday, we played part one of a two-part series with Abby Martin. I have such respect for Abby, and uh, because she's she goes into the danger areas of the world. She tells us a story the media refuses to tell us, and she brings back the truth. And historically, when you look back at what she has suggested, what she has offered, what she's proffered, what she has exposed, it's all been correct. In this case, what she's going to do now, she's taking us into 
uh, Jerusalem. She's taking us to a very nice area. And you were hearing some of the comments of people yesterday. Just, these are not soldiers. These are just regular citizens. And they're talking about what they feel about their life, why they're there, how much they enjoy being there, inviting other people, but also the problem of the Arabs. You don't hear a lot of them calling them Palestinians, they call them Arabs. And without ex only one exception, they should be eliminated, all of them. Well, okay, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to put them? Do they have any rights? What about the ones who've been living there for generation after generation and owned the property? Doesn't matter. The settlers have taken those over, and therefore the government wants to, and you know, to clear the land. That's what they're talking about. And I want you to think about what is being said, then look at it into a larger world context, and I'll offer commentary as I did yesterday, maybe too on a historical level, show why this has been going on all over the world throughout time immemorial. Maybe it's time we changed. So now, Abby Martin. Palestinian, where are the Palestinian people during 4,000 years under the Ottoman Ottomanim? Answer me. Well, I'm the journalist here, so I don't... Ah. And how God punished is the sins by other people. He said, he sent the Nazis, he sent, and now he sent Palestinians. Okay. But it's really rightfully ours if you look at the history and at, like the wars. And we didn't even start a lot of the wars. And it, we, we conquered these places rightfully, like it's ours. We brought the settlements in the, by Gaza, you know, all the, all the Gush Katif strip. I gave Gaza back. Well, we gave part of Israel. It's not uh, that, it's not Gaza. It's, it's, uh, 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 we do things for peace. I think that the Jews came here, they took a, they took this land and this is our land now. And I don't think there should be here, no Arabs. <laughs> Like Arabs, they want, we gave them Gaza, they should go live there quietly if they want. They should go back to Iraq, to, I don't know, to wherever they want. But this is a place, this is a place that God gave it to the Jews, and we don't want the Arabs to be here. And before they accuse anyone of occupying, they should actually look back and, and look at history. So you wouldn't call any of this occupied territory? Um, no, I think that whatever deals were made and wars were fought, they took the land, and that's, that's the way things work. I mean, would you call America occupied by Americans because the British used to rule? The people who kicked the Jews out of Israel were the Arabs. 1,400 years later, we come back. Now, I'm not saying that we can blame the people living here for what happened, but you got to accept that that's some kind of divine justice, that their great-great-great-great-grandfathers kicked my great-great-great-grandfather out of here, and then we come back, and all of a sudden they're like, well, no, we don't want it, it's not fair. They took the land from us, not the Romans, and not the Persians, and not the Byzantines. It was Arabs who took this land from Jews. And so, yeah, we came back, and we took what was rightly, rightfully ours. Uh, oh, yeah. Besides the fact that before the Jews came to here in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was like a barren land. Like, because the Jews came here, we, it started to, like, flourish or whatever, and become actually like people start planting things and making settlements and all these places if the Jews never came here then it'd be this in the same place it was like 200 years ago or not where it is today 
And so we, like, the Jews came here and they started making it better for also the Arabs. And they only start to be an issue because the Arabs started to make it more of an issue. How many people think like you? Uh, what is the state of the left wing within Israeli society? So the people who think like me are, are a negligible few. And uh, I would argue that there is no left in Israel and never ever existed. What you have are those uh, self-proclaimed leftists, uh, liberal Zionists, who basically speak the language of peace and human rights and, all, and so on in order to sugarcoat their racism and supremacy. And they speak a very different language than the acting government, for example, because the acting government is clearly a right-wing government. Government. They are shameless about their racist uh, attitudes and so on. They say this is ours and only ours. Many of them are decent enough to say, yes, there was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and that's a good thing. The problem is that, is that we haven't finished the job, that there are still Palestinians left in Palestine. With the other type of Zionists, with the so-called left in Israel, we cannot even agree about the basic facts. But for them, in order to feel that they are both Zionist and moral at the same time, they have to keep lying to themselves all the time, every moment of every day. So, so they have perfected this whole discourse of lies in order to lie to themselves and also in order to lie to the international community, in order to justify their existence here in that. I think the occupation does have a role, a big role and important. I don't think there should be no occupation at all, but in the occupation things need to be more human. Do you get called a leftist a lot? Yeah, yeah, I am a leftist. Is, le is leftist a slur yes. sometimes? Yes, it is. It is not a, good, um, not a good way to be called in Israel. Israel doesn't want to compromise on security. They have to do a blockade. They have to kind of cut this off. It's, you know, it's ridiculous what people have to go through there, but it's also ridiculous what we have to do to keep ourselves safe. We don't want to fight with them. But if they ask for it, they will get it. And we're much stronger, much stronger. We are, we are very behave very gently and and more morally, very gently with them. It could get a lot worse, is what yeah. you're saying. If 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 the Russians was here, two days, they will kill all of them. If the Americans will be here, they will kill them two days. They don't care about human rights, they don't care about nothing. Israel's holding back. Very, very. But it's war, and civilians get killed in war, and it's a horrible, you know, on their side, less on our side, but at the same time, it's, we put money into protecting ourselves. Well, look, the refugees, are, is, it's, their situation is horrible, but no other nation in the world gets the refugee status that Palestinians do. The Palestinians, third-generation people, are still considered refugees. You know, I had friends that were Canadian. They went on their passports. They wanted to see what the refugee camps were. They wanted to see what it was all about. They came back. They said, it's nothing what I imagined it. Like you know? better than they imagined? Or? They said people were driving around with nice cars. People had nice houses, villas, things like that. They thought people were being oppressed, like, you know, like living in tents. It was like they probably were, like maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, like in the past. For them, in order for them to be Zionist and moral, in order for them to have a Jewish and democratic state, they needed, first of all and foremost, to create a Jewish majority by force, by driving away the indigenous people from their land. And this is how the state was founded. And immediately afterwards, they created a whole legal system that will make sure that those who have been expelled will never be allowed back, and those who remained on their land, because not everyone was expelled, will never be equal citizens. 
unfortunately, what we hear on mainstream media, this so-called discourse or so-called debate between the right and the left is about that. It's about do we want a large Israel, which is Arab-free, or do we want a small Israel, which is Arab-free? This is the debate that's taking place. Last question. There's this whole international movement of leftists and activists who want to boycott Israel for human rights violations. Being here, seeing that, and what do you just think about that? I think the BDS movement, the leaders of the BDS movement, or everyone that thinks that Israel is bad, if they, if they can, if they, they should read up about the topic, the other side, and they should come here and see how everybody's comfortable. People right now, they're looking at, at Israel and they're calling it an apartheid state. And Israel is not an apartheid state. There's places, I mean, my family from five generations ago, they were from Janine. You can't find one Jew in Janine right now. I mean, it's, it's totally Jew-free. So if you want to think about a racist apartheid state, it seems it's more, in my opinion, coming from their side. And just, just a response, I guess, to kind of this international movement, the BDS movement, and also the movement that says settlements are illegal, they're encroaching on Palestinian land. Can you respond to that? Um, I think the response would be two part. The first part would be very simple. Nobody gives Turkey problems for their settlements in Cyprus. It's an anti-Semitic thing. To the, maybe they don't know that they hate Jews, but they give us so much trouble. The UN only talks about Israel. What about North Korea? What about Russia? Then the second thing would be to say is that... Even from the UN? Completely from the UN. I mean, I mean, come on, you're talking about that we're worse than the North Korean dictatorship? Like, nobody in the world thinks that. So those people in the UN and all these peace activists, I mean, look, she's a woman, she's walking around however she wants here in Israel, right? There's female genital mutilation in Egypt, not very far from here. Why don't people talk about that? I think that, like, we should have more, not more rights. I think we have rights to build more houses for our citizens. And like, a lot of things that Israel gets criticism for, other countries will never get it. I want to say to the government here in Israel, there is no way to have peace in Israel. There is no way to have peace in Israel, they always hate us. אם אי אפשר לעשות שלום והמצב ככה לא יכול להישאר, אז צריך לטפל בהם בדרכים אחרות, אין מה לעשות. are totally irrelevant to the question of how do we change the situation. Did it matter what white people think about apartheid in South Africa at the time? The question is how do we end apartheid and how do we end Israeli crimes? You know, every Israeli official will say, will claim to speak on behalf of the Jewish people and will even demand of Palestinians to recognize Israel's right to be a Jewish state and so on. I don't recognize Israel's right to be a Jewish state because it is not Jewish by religion. It is only Jewish by supremacy. Israel is Jewish just like South Africa was white, in the exact same context, with the exact same meaning. And obviously any decent person around the world should oppose that because it is inherently racist, and more than that. And it also happens to be very much against international law. So when we talk about Israel as an apartheid state, even though it's not exactly like South Africa, it neatly falls under the legal definition of the crime of apartheid, which is a very serious crime, one of the few crimes that is regarded as a crime against humanity, which means that all countries of the world are obligated to, to, to do something against it, not to, not to be complicit in that. And what we're coming and saying is, no, there are basic fundamental Palestinian rights that must be respected. One of them is ending of the occupation, of course, but that's not the main issue, that's part of the issue. The other two rights are equality inside Israel proper, or what we call Palestine 48, 
and the rights of refugees which have been expelled from there since the very foundation of the State of Israel. These are fundamental rights, they must be respected. Uh, and now we can debate, we can argue about how do we implement these rights. I'm willing to discuss that. I'm not willing to discuss, you know, should we have equality or not. This is not negotiable. I'd like your input, please. Give us a call at 888-874-4888. I'll hold on my thoughts until you share yours. Now we're going to go to something. Again, I said I've got a lot of different topics and a lot of different areas that we should be concerned about. And one of them is on the planet and how desperate we're trying to correct some of the imbalances that have occurred by our excess consumption and pollution over the last hundred years. But we're looking at solar and looking at electric vehicles and wind power as the three options right now. And we virtue signal. A lot of people say, hey, I've got an electric vehicle. I'm really hip. I'm ahead of it. Shame on you for driving that gas gunling vehicle. Here's the bad part of this. I will not, I repeat, I would not drive if I were given free a $100,000 electric vehicle. Why? Because it's utter, complete hypocrisy. Because as a real environmentalist, not a faux environmentalist, I actually do the homework, the scholarship, and look at my films, Saving the Planet One Bite at a Time, um, uh, Last Call for Tomorrow, the book, uh, Clear, Cleaner, Safer, Greener, and multiple books, hundreds of articles, thousands of broadcasts, where we go into depth. And if you actually do a simple, don't be emotional about it, just simple facts, how much pollution is created? What is the carbon footprint to make an electrical vehicle, including the battery? Okay? Now, how long would I have to drive this car for it to offset all the pollution that's caused and also the human suffering that's caused in mining in Africa, the minerals necessary for that lithium battery. Now, do the same thing with solar. Do the same thing with wind. Why we have not heard anyone promoting the idea, let's take a look at all those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of wind power stations around the world. Oh, they killed two million birds in a year? Well, too bad. And now they're causing the death of whales? Well, too bad for the whales. They shouldn't be in the water. Then they should be someplace else. I mean, it's just insane, our, our lack of understanding interconnectivity of cause and effect. Now, they also have new technology, which I fully support, bladeless wind power. You could put it on your own home and it would help supply some of the electricity for your home. They have solar paint. You could do that with that as well. But more importantly than anything, we're being told only what the manufacturers and the people profiting from these solar companies, wind companies, and electric vehicle companies want us to hear. It's as if we don't, don't tell me the bad part of this story. Well, let's keep it very positive. But there's a dark side to this. You're actually contributing to pollution instead of eliminating it. Do we want to know how to help the environment? Then let's take a look at this documentary, the short part, and then what we can do about it that really helps. Now to the documentary. So first let's understand what cobalt is. It's this blue mineral that's become really important in the past few years. 
I mean, just look at the price of cobalt since 2010. It's like popped off in these last few years because of one thing. Electric cars are expected to double the world's demand for cobalt by the year 2025. I want to continue to explain cobalt in China and all that, but like first we have to understand the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, this massive country in the middle of Africa that honestly should be one of the richest countries on earth because it is sitting on top of so many valuable resources. Unfortunately, this is a place that for centuries has not been able to actually take advantage of this wealth because it has been pillaged by outsiders. Whether that's the people being literally stolen and shipped across the Atlantic as forced labor, or this brutal Belgian king who came in and forced the Congolese people to work to harvest rubber, or more recently, the blood diamond rush. I mean, this place has been pillaged for years because of its resources. So here we are in 2022. The new hot commodity is not rubber or diamonds, it's cobalt. This blue mineral that used to be just like for making ceramics turn blue, like that's what it was useful for. But now it has a really useful purpose in the growing world of electric vehicles. Electric vehicles. A lot of people love Tesla. Well, this is the EV sales forecast. Electric vehicles are the future. So I know something about how electric car batteries are made. I kind of know the things that go into them. How did a substance that made ceramics blue end up being so important to electric car batteries? Well, at first, lithium is like the, the main ingredient and like that was the most important. But as more and more car companies are trying to make their cars go longer and further without exploding, Cobalt is this amazing material that helps regulate the heat and like volatility of an EV. So cobalt is super important for electric cars to be able to go long distances without needing a recharge or exploding. Absolutely. We're in this phase where like every car company is competing on these sort of nuanced like marginal improvements. Like my car can go 400 kilometers, mine can go 410. And so cobalt is becoming more and more important for these long range features that are becoming important in this like cutthroat competition. Turns out that the Congo has 70% of the world's cobalt. Like I'm not kidding when I say this place is like resource rich. You're rich. So this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, but guess who read the tea leaves like 20 years ago and started investing in cobalt mines in the Congo? China. China, yes, <laughs> obviously. China. The Democratic Republic of Congo struck a big deal with Beijing. Chinese traders here bought all the cobalt and sold it mainly to one Chinese company. This is where I start to get pessimistic about the whole green energy revolution and let me tell you why. I made this video a while back about how China has been rushing into Africa to build up a bunch of infrastructure and to win the hearts of African nations but also to kind of assert control and leverage over them. But as a part of all of this Chinese investment into Africa, China has been pouring loads of money into mines, specifically focusing on the DRC where all these minerals are. And again, this is like the early 2000s. They set up all of these mines and started mining and processing cobalt. If you look at a chart of EV demand, it goes way up in the 2000s. How did they know? Like, why would China show up and start mining cobalt if it wasn't particularly valuable yet? Yeah, and that's a really important question, and the answer just sort of blew my mind. The first one's easy, which is that cobalt became useful for other things like, like cell phone batteries and things like that, so there already was sort of like some nascent demand there. 
but it's also because of how China's economy works. Because China's a communist country where the state and the economy are like intertwined, they have different incentives than the capitalist West. Like in our economy, we have independent corporations who focus on delivering short-term profits to shareholders. In China, they can take long-term bets. They can say like, in 20 years, we think that this is gonna be really valuable, so we're gonna pour tons of money into this because we don't need to deliver profits next quarter. We can deliver profits in 20 years. So it gives them this unique ability to make big bets that could potentially be huge. And in this case, it was the absolute best bet they could have made. We hit the jackpot here. So all of this explains why China controls 15 out of the 19 cobalt mines in the DRC. Okay, so you got electric vehicle demand going up. Cobalt is necessary for electric vehicles. And you've got China with their foresight buying up all of these mines in the Congo to control the supply of cobalt, which we're gonna need for EVs. Yes, that is exactly right. And this gets into the strategy and the geopolitics of all of this. There's this one quote from an expert that Politico interviewed. He says that China is not processing all of that cobalt to export it to the United States to support your electric vehicle revolution. They're gonna make cheap cars themselves and the best that you can hope for is that they'll export those cheap cars to you. Like, it's just so clear that like they're doing this to control what they see as a massive burgeoning market that they wanna have an, a corner on and, and they're doing it. And here we go with why I feel so disappointed as I learn about all of this. Like here you have China racing to control this valuable mineral so that they can have leverage and power as the world transitions to cleaner energy. Oh, and not to mention that as China shows up and does all of this cobalt mining, you'll see no regard for worker safety. You'll see super dangerous mines. You'll see children doing backbreaking work. You have people routinely dying on the job. And perhaps the biggest contradiction of all is that this is a finite resource once again. Oh, and the process of mining and refining this stuff is the same old story of deforestation, polluted rivers, and just general exploitation. I mean, I thought the sustainable green revolution was going to be like clean and just for people. I thought electric cars would actually mean a cleaner way of doing business, like a cleaner future. But instead, we're seeing the same old earth-destroying great power resource race that got us here in the first place. You good? Yeah, I, my rant is over. I'm sorry. I just, this has like gotten me really worked up and uh, I, I'm ready to like chill out now. When I used to imagine a clean energy future, I had this image in my head, right, of like that moment in every sci-fi where they go like, once we lived in harmony. People lived in harmony. And there's Wakanda and there's that one Chobani ad where everyone is using technology and living You're in smart. a beautiful farm. I know you Record scratch freeze frame. Here we are in the real world where right now it, it totally is the same old story of exploitation and harm to the environment in different ways and harm to people. I think one thing that's important to realize is that when we talk about a cleaner future, we're specifically talking about less CO2. And so though it conjures up all of these images of clean in other ways, it's on us to do that also. It, there's nothing about the technology that inherently will bring that about. Oh dear, what can we do? We have a few things that we can do. The first is, 
we can change the kinds of batteries that we're using. There's a lot of development in new kinds of batteries. One of them is a lithium iron battery, not a lithium ion battery. There's an extra R in there. And that battery uses different kinds of minerals. It doesn't use any cobalt. That might help this specific example, but the reality is that most of these minerals have their own stories of exploitation, so it's not... It's not great. So here's where I start to feel pretty optimistic. There's a big difference between fossil fuels and minerals. You're right that the difference between electric vehicles and gas combustion vehicles is that one uses fossil fuels and the other, we're swapping out fossil fuels for minerals. But there's a big difference between fossil fuels and minerals. Namely, fossil fuels are being incinerated every time that we drive. If we're using more minerals to power our cars, we also have the opportunity to get a lot better at recycling. This shows how much we already recycle. This is end-of-life recycling rates for select metals in electric car batteries. Hmm. Oh, so we're already recycling a lot of these materials, including cobalt. Like, yes. it's almost 40%. Yes. And the other thing to keep in mind here is you don't need to recycle these minerals and metals in cars themselves. You could have a clean energy future where we're recycling metals and minerals from batteries that store wind and solar energy into electric cars that are then re-recycled back out into other forms of storage and batteries. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that is a like optimistic view of batteries because it just feels so finite, but if like the lifespan is dramatically higher, like that becomes a much more useful and less resource intensive proposition. There's also one more possibility, and I think that people will call me a little bit pie in the sky here, but I'm okay with that. I think it's possible that it may not just be about fixing the problem with cars, but also about fixing the problem of cars. There's a high-tech version of this where self-driving cars, there's some research and speculation that they might reduce the amount of cars that we're using total. There's also a lower-tech version of this where we just invest more in public transport. That might sound unsexy, but it really does seem to me like the most promising option. I think also if you zoom out for a second and think about why we care about climate change, yes, we care about animals and we care about the planet itself, but we also care a lot about human suffering. One of the reasons why so many people care about climate change is because it will cause human suffering. It already is. And so if you take this story and you look at the human suffering caused by mining and you then say, oh, we're not going to try and solve this problem. We're just, what, going to let more climate change happen? We have to solve these things at the same time because both will will hurt more people, basically. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's a... I think if there's like two major takeaways that I take from from your research into this, it's like number one, a greener future is not inherently a cleaner, more idealistic, happy future. It just is like a less CO2 future, which is like, again, obvious. It's like so obvious when you say it like that and make that differentiation. But like I had those so deeply bound together but I think the more important idea is like, even though I have a pessimistic view of like great power rivalry, there's not an option here. Like th there's no scenario in which throwing up my hands and being like the world's effed is like gonna do anything. And it's like, it's in fact, it's the easier way out in a lot of ways. And so it's good to know that there is like real work being done to try to solve this and that it's not just like bound to go down the same route. In my mind, this story isn't a cleaner future is just as bad. It's a cleaner future is a cleaner future with problems that we still have to solve. Before we jump into a
Well, these magical elixir fixer all problems of a electric vehicle, we stop and do some homework, and we'll see that it's not everything it's cranked up to be, and then we we forego doing anything else because we did our thing. We 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 bought an electric car. What else do you want? Well, how about just eliminating all the plastic? How about going into every school in America and say, why don't we have all the school kids and college students pull together, have the community buy trees, start with thousands, then tens and hundreds of thousands, then millions per state, and go out and plant them. In the process of planting them, teach courses to them, or have webinars, or have have uh, tutorials on what it means when you plant a shrub versus a tree, what kind of tree that will capture the most carbon in the root system, keep it in the ground where it belongs. And that would make a difference. Also making a difference, buy your clothes where you know that no one was exploited. No woman, more often than not, was exploited. Don't buy them from Bangladesh. Pure exploitation, China, India, and uh, Haiti. But look to see if it's union-made. I support union-made clothes or fair exchange. Also, just stop buying so much stuff. Go to a vegan plant-based diet and then go to local farmers and ask them to grow foods for you. Your favorite 30 foods. Here's the money in advance. I'm saving money paying you in advance. You're making money before you even plant your crop. So it's a cooperative arrangement, locally grown, healthy foods, living foods, and you buy them without all the transportation that it took to bring an apple from Washington State or Michigan to Georgia or Florida. Lots of carbon footprint saving if we want to. We just don't want to as, as a country. Individuals certainly do, and I commend them for it. These are the simple things we can do. Otherwise, people are just going to wait till the government or science creates the problem, solution, and that's not going to happen. Not now, not in the future. I'd like your input, 888-874-4888. Now, I want to address something that was a part of yesterday's program. I hope people would call in, but they didn't, and I hope you call in today. And, uh, and inside our New York studio, um, Dylan, Kyle, Kathy, uh, if someone calls in who has a positive suggestion, I'd like to get them right on the air. And then from, let's just pull back for a moment and go to neutral. Just go to neutral. Don't think where uh, you've got a conditioned mind where you have to filter everything through that conditioning and propagandized mind. Just look at it in, as a conscious awareness thought. So right now, in Israel, there's this argument. And those that you've heard want to support this, and probably the vast majority of people living in Israel uh, accept this also. We were here. We were thrown out by the Arabs. Actually, that's challenged. And, uh, and now we, want, we got it back. So we've conquered this. It's ours. And we don't want anyone else sharing it with us. We want expulsion. Now they can leave. They can walk out and go in the Sinai Desert. Or maybe another country will take them in. That's not going to happen. None of the Arab states will. Uh, or they can resist and be thrown off the land. But they're gone. Because who, who's going to go back to rubble? I mean, this is not just going after Hamas. I think anyone, no matter what your background, would appreciate that. This is about removing an entire population out of a 25-mile area, five miles wide, 25 long, with one road going in and out. There's no other place to go. And now, what if we took a look at this argument 
from a different perspective. I just want to share some examples off the top of my head of groups and races and ethnicities and foreigners claiming land is it's ours. We want it. Get off of it. And suppressing the original inhabitants. Let's start, let's go back to 1800 to 1500 BC in the Indo-Aryan migration. Aryans from the Eastern European steppes region who were militaristic pushed across Persia and occupied the Indus Valley, that's Pakistan, and then the Ganji Plains, which is India. And the Aryan domination is evident based upon the uh, change in mythologies, the hymns, the rituals from earlier indigenous gods replaced by deities reflecting the Euro-Aryan language. We have the Babylonians. Yes, in 597 BC, the Babylonian invasion and captivity of the kingdom of Judea. The Jews relocated through Babylonian Empire. Then you have the ancient Greece under Alexander the Great, the rise of the Ptolemaic Empire, like Egypt, and Cleopatra was part of that, though she was Greek in her origin, and the Levant, which is Palestine, to the borders of India. However, the Greeks acted differently. Rather than impose the rule of centralized laws from Greece on the captured lands, its policy was for Greeks to adopt and integrate into the indigenous culture, meaning intermarry, embrace local religion and customs. The empire then became based more on trade rather than military conquest, opposite of the Romans, which was purely military-based control. And then just look at the Roman Empire. They, the military, was domination of Palestine. And then you had the Crusades. The Crusades, the Europeans, claiming ownership of Palestine and Syria. Then go over to the United States and just look at it for its actual history. The U.S. expansion was built upon a foundation of colonization, which also represented racism and ended up man manifesting as genocide. How many? There's no accurate figure. The closest I could come was 100 to 110 million North, Central, and South American native population were killed or died because of colonization and the genocide. So the U.S. land theft of Native American lands, the Louisiana Purchase, the Monroe Doctrine, the Manifest Destiny philosophy during the Western push during the gold rush. And what happened? Well, then when people took over land, what were we going to do with these native children? Well, let's do the right thing. Let's bring them into Christian organizations, mainly Catholic organizations. And what for? To remove the native identities. We don't want them speaking this language. No, they did that. Then you had the motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. Well, that makes perfect sense, only to a sociopath, but that's what they live by. And then until 1978, that's how soon this is, Native children could legally be kidnapped from their families by the U.S. government and forced to attend these boarding schools. They'd share, cut off their hair, they'd make them wear Western-style clothes, and wouldn't allow them to speak their language. Now, the federal government outlawed Native American religious practices. And then there's a couple real scoundrels. Andrew Jackson is one. Now, he signed the Indian Removal Act of 1830 in order to the removal of all Native Americans from their tribal lands 
into reservations. That was the 12 tiers. And when they found oil in Oklahoma, which is rather a bleak place and not uh, not great for living and sustaining, they then moved them even further away into more impossible places to live. About one-third of all of them on that trail died. My great-great-grandmother was a full-blooded American Cherokee Indian, and her family escaped when the migration started and went north into North Carolina and settled there. And only a handful, according to their stories, made it out. Then the Supreme Court attempted to side with the tribes because of, well, of different treaties they signed. Over 300 treaties. Every single one the United States government broke. And uh, Andrew Jackson bypassed the courts to further meet the needs of white supremacy. Then you had in 1887 what was called the Dawes Act, D-A-W-E-S. And it divided native reservations into individual allotments and sold all the excess good land to white settlers. And tribes lost nearly two-thirds of their land this way. The only land they were allowed to have was ones that no white person wanted to live on. But let's go north. Let's go to Canada. Massive land theft. Massive. And relocation of all the indigenous tribes. The removal of children from mothers and forced into government schools for re-education where hundreds died. Let's go south. Let's go to Australia. The Australian human rights violations against the Aboriginal people was phenomenal. Violent dispossession of lands. They just murdered them. Indentured labor, including children. Yes. Removal of children from mothers. High incarceration rates, meaning they had island prisons. And then they had relocation policies. Now, we keep hearing the word apartheid. The apartheid convention defines the crime against humanity of apartheid as inhumane, acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination of one racial group uh, or person over another racial group or person and systematically oppressing them. Well, every single thing I just told you will qualify then as apartheid. The Rome Statue of ICC adopts a similar definition. Inhumane acts committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over another racial group or groups committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. Well, that sure is, that sure is everything we did the Native Americans, and that's everything the British did, and that's everything the Israelis are doing. Look first at apartheid nations, which we can best distinguish from other forms of national racism and segregations, being based upon actual legal institutionalized segregation, such as being illegal to intermarry, illegal to uh, register so you could vote, forced locations so you got to go live in this camp, and relocation based upon your racial underclass status. Then let's look at South Africa. That's a really good example. The classic apartheid state was South Africa and then West South Africa, which is Nambia from 1948 to the early 1990s. Blacks outnumbered whites five to one. Non-whites, what were called native South Africans and Indians, uh, the non-whites were driven from homes and forced into resettlements into segregated neighborhoods, and these were ghettoized. There were three million blacks 
800,000 what were called coloreds and 400,000 Indians were resettled. That's over 4 million people under the worst and most harsh conditions. If you fought it, if you argued, you could be tortured or killed. 87% of the land eventually was ruled by Europeans. And the detention and incarceration without charge, just like what Governor Hocha wants to do in New York State. And the legalized press censorship. Now, compare that with Israel. Gaza and the West Bank were originally given, in their entirety, to the Palestinians. And, but now, both are completely occupied territories. In fact, former British Prime Minister Cameron, David Cameron, said Gaza is, quote, an open-air prison. They have limited rights if you're an Arab. And if you're an Arab-Israeli, you're a second-class citizen, especially after the 2018 nation-state law, which has been condemned as discrimination against non-Jews. Israel's greatest fear is Palestinian birth rates are much higher than Jews, so there are limitations preventing them in the government legislature from them becoming a majority voting force. So we talk about this great democracy. Well, it sure doesn't have anything to do with a real democracy. UN investigators, the African National Congress, the Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, some liberal Israeli politicians, and by the way, that's almost an oxymoron, because you'll see some people who are considered liberal, but they're not. They're just more, they're more appeasing Zionists. And they still, they've accused Israel as an apartheid state. Now, Human Rights Watch and says that the Israeli authorities methodically privilege Jewish Israelis and discriminate against Palestinians. In pursuit of this goal, authorities have dispossessed, confined, forcibly segregated, and subjugated Palestinians by virtue of their identity to varying degrees of intensity. Israel has maintained military rule over some portion of the Palestinian population for all but six months of 73-year history. And for the past 54 years, Israeli authorities have facilitated the transfer, just like Andrew Jackson did, of Jewish uh, Israelis, the so-called settlers, to the occupied Palestinian territory and granted them a superior status under the law as compared to Palestinians living in the same territory when it comes to civil rights, access to land, and freedom to move, build, confer residency rights to close relatives. None of that is allowed. In fact, if you have been on the property, the land, on a 1,000-year-old olive garden, and you've been there for 100 years, one generation after the other, you'll see the settlers coming down and tearing down your trees, and then when you complain, they shoot you. And what happens? Absolutely, positively nothing. So, the state of Palestine is a state party to both the Rome statue and the apartheid convention. Israel ignores all that. But it's not just Israel. Many Islamic states, nations, likewise, have legal policies. Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Pakistan, have laws preventing non-Muslims with full national rights. Um, you have the uh, non-Muslims pay a special, what is called a jazaya, a special tax. In some Islamic states, non-Muslims are prohibited from building places of worship. Then you have China. The Han Chinese have a special ethnic privilege, especially in regions such as the Uyghur region 
and in Tibet, the Dalai Lama once said, the new Chinese settlers have created an alternate society, a Chinese apartheid, which denying Tibetans equal social and economic status in their own land threatens to finally over, overwhelm and absorb us. China has the Hukou residential system, kind of a caste system. And then you have Malaysia, and you have Myanmar, Burma, and you have Cotter. And by the way, 90% of the population of Cotter is migrant workers with no national rights, no civil rights, no work rights, no means of citizenship. And every major human rights group has condemned Cotter as an apartheid state, but you wouldn't know that from the soccer world. And Saudi Arabia is almost the same. So you see, here's where we're at. We're at a place where if you say, we conquered, we control, we're coming to this and we own it, then by extension, by that logic, the British, who controlled America before we did, uh, could say, well, yes, there's some people there and there's some colonies, but we're in control and you'll pay our taxes, you'll live by our decrees. Well, then that should be taken away by Americans. But then the Native Americans can say, hold on, before the French came, before the English came, before the Spanish came, we were here. It's our land, and it's been so for thousands of years. And therefore, all of land is ours, so you get the hell off of it, all Americans. Don't worry about you know, trying to think that somehow because you gave us some trinkets that Manhattan is yours. Now go around the world and ask which country are you aware of if you held this concept that whoever controlled it at one time in history should now control it at this time in history and see what kind of chaos would exist. Learning how to bring peacekeepers to the fore, not militarist, not those attached to the military-industrial complex, that's what we need. We don't have that today. And we can only have peace in the Middle East when we have the Palestinians have a right to land, the right to govern themselves, and a right to make their own rules and laws and live in peace and harmony and be fully commercialized to the degree they want and need and not be threatened, but at the same time not threaten and get rid of Hamas and get rid of Netanyahu and his Likud party. And that's the only way this is going to work. Otherwise, we're going to have continuing chaos. And if you think you're going to kill all the Hamas and the problem ends, well, why don't you come back and look at how it worked on every single continent when they took out those who were fighting because they were oppressed? Never worked. Not once. Tomorrow I'll give you a commentary on South Africa's, one of its leading intellects on this topic. Again, I'm, I like your thoughts on this. But now I've got, uh, I want to go back. I'm offering two different things and I only have five minutes. The one is I have a really brand new video for you. And you can actually go to Gary's products and uh, you'll see, you can watch the first 10 minutes of the video. It's, it's one of the most motivating of all the videos I've ever done. And uh, it's all about I'm not finished yet. And what it means when I'm not finished yet is that people have a lot of issues in life that they have to deal with. Most people are stressed. Most people overvalue service industries for the broken and wounded bodies, minds, and souls. And people's addictive behavior to their insecurities has led them living humdrum, predictable, meaningless existences. 
As a consequence, habits of stagnant complacency have disarmed their capacity to make positive change and move beyond the self-conditioned obstacles that stand between making wise, positive, constructive decisions to start your life again versus the dreariness, the monotony, the boredom of just another day, another dollar, and where's the happiness, where's the excitement, where's the sense of renewal? It's not there. So you can go to uh, over to our website, and you can get that special, and uh, call this number. The video is called, I'm Not Finished Yet, because a lot of people are now waking up realizing that they can go on another path, they can rejuvenate themselves, and a lot are doing that. I'm helping with this documentary. It's called, it's calling 877-627-5065, 877-627-5065. And if you go to Gary's uh, products, whatever it is, and uh, then you'll be able to download it and watch 10 minutes, see if you like it or not. All right? And we're going to do that with all the videos coming up. And finally, um, so I'm very excited about that. But one other thing, and I, I've, I've been doing this now on my own, and, and I'm going to want people each month to send me an email at the station, and I'll give you that in a moment. In fact, I ask, uh, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dylan, Dylan, send me an email address so people can contact me. I want to see what changes you see in your skin. But I did something about a month ago, and I'm seeing some really positive changes. I take a little bit, and again, you don't need a lot of the anti-aging miracle cream. You massage it into your hand, and then in the morning, after you take your shower, you just rub it through your hair and scalp. And when I'm able to film again, which will be on December the 5th, when I get a whole new window here that blocks out the light, because all the light's shining through, and I can't film because you can't see anything, you'll see the difference in the hair. But put this cream, a skin cream on wherever you have damaged sunspots, uh, anything, wrinkles, crepey skin, your knees, your legs, under your arms, around your neck, your face. And I suggest that you wash your face, take a shower before you put it on. And it's not greasy, it's not oily and start seeing how long it takes before you see the difference. Why is this important? Because everyone cares about their skin, their face, and then they go to a store, a good, reputable store like Macy's. And we went over to Macy's, went, we went to their best department in cosmetics, and we said, show us your most popular high-end, the best of the best uh, skin creams, and they did. The average is about $500. And so we took a list of all the ingredients, and we went back and we checked to see, is there science supporting them? You should do the same. Now, I'm not going to badmouth another product. I don't do that. But now take a look at ours, because it took five years to do this product and to perfect it. And having glowing, vibrant, healthy skin is more than simply restoring cosmetic youthfulness. Since our skin is our body's largest organ, having healthy skin will filter and the pollutants and toxins regulate our body temperature and protect everything beneath its surface and ward off potential problems. Our skin is our greatest defense mechanism. And uh, 
So we have to take care of it. And I want to create, as I do with anything I create, the best I can humanly do. Now, if it's better than other products, so be it. But uh, I take my time. I don't rush anything to market. And that's why I purchased patented products with a lots of scientific evidence and clinical studies behind them that I know are now proven to make a difference in my product. Uh, for example, the extracellular matrix programming peptone are uniquely derived from the plant and marine kingdoms, nourishes skin cells, stimulates the production of soluble elastin and as a defense against the loss of elasticity. Wouldn't you like tighter skin? and which contributes to the sagging and wrinkling when you don't. And a third novel ingredient I have, by the way, is an exceptional lipopeptide formula to stimulate six crucial constituents in the skin in the epidermal matrix, three types of collagen, fibronesticin, hyaluric acid, and laminin-5. Together, these peptides formula rebuilds and tightens wrinkles and creases from the inside. And finally, uh, the Asia Sanser Skin Cream has been formulated with the finest natural moisturized, like organically grown aloe vera, uh, anti-aging rejuvenators to restore the skin's barrier, including evening primrose oil, metafoam, and rosehip. You know, it's got the best of the best. So look at it, the $500 bottle for 2.7 ounces, 2.7 ounces, and look at mine, 4.5 ounces twice as much a product, therefore my product should sell for $1,000, realistically, and on Rodeo Drive, it would. And people wouldn't blink about it, because if you want the best of the best that I know of, and my belief is I've created the finest anti-aging skin cream in history. And if you doubt me, show me one, show me, just send me a copy of the label. I'm sure there's something I missed out there in all the research I was doing to see, because I'm not a person that likes to follow anyone. I don't. And if you've known me throughout my career, you know I like to go out there and just, if I failed something, fine, but I'm going to take a chance and try to do the best I can. And I believe that you have now the best that there is. But there's also something else in this product, and these are lysosomal-derived stem cells from a very rare Swiss apple. And again, I didn't invent that, but the people who did, they have a patent on it, and they have licensing fees, which are very high. Okay, that's their business. But this is, extends the skin's longevity and to prevent delay and reverse wrinkling. So I've got all of these, according to a Harvard research. Well, I won't go into it. We're out of time. I'll just simply say, if you care about your skin, then consider what you're being offered here. And, uh, and I'm, I still have a little bit in stock, and I look forward to... Um, going back and place another order because it's going to take me four months after a place you order to get it back. But if you want this, you can call Neil in the Vitamin Closet at 646-926-5430. Or you can call this number and speak with Sandy and Diane at 877-627-5065. So real quick, A, I believe that I have finally created the finest anti-aging skin cream in history. B, I want you to, before you do anything, look at my label, write down the ingredients, and then go in and do your own homework. Go every single ingredient, and you don't see all these chemicals and artificial everythings and artificial, no, the natural aroma, it all is natural. Then compare that 
to the most expensive marketed product out there. And then ask yourself, wow, how are they charging $500 and giving you 2.7 and Gary's giving a one month introductory offer and one week has gone by, three more weeks at $100 and he's giving you twice the amount of the product with all these ingredients that these other products don't have. But I believe in freedom of choice. And the best way to have freedom of choice is make yourself aware of what you're buying. If you care about your skin, any skin on your body, then see if this works. And just let me know every 30 days. And within 90 days, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Take pictures before and after so you can see what changes occur. 877-627-5065. 877-627-5065. And I'm limiting it this to three to a person so I don't run out. All right? Because the price is going up. It should go for $200. You're paying 100 against those other products at 500 All right? So this is a phenomenal deal. We got to go. Thank you all for listening. Have a nice day.